So you got a whole uh, alpha team now, don't you? But you, but you have a wealth of knowledge that is beneficial to a lot of people, and it we can move the needle. How often do you hear a hunting podcast? We talked about this. People relate to this. Hello, everyone. I've got um, a guy I've been, I, I don't say maybe friends with, acquaintances, kind of friends with for quite some time, does some amazing work, and has kind of taken over the the knife world from my perspective uh, on the other end of the mic, and that's uh, Josh Smith with Montana Knife Company. Uh, man, I, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I've uh, enjoyed listening to this podcast for a long time, so it's cool to be on it. You've had a lot of cool guests on so it's honor to be here well yeah let's not oversell it but i appreciate that uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> i uh well i've got i've got a few of your knives um i've used them off and on I, well i use the speed goat i'd say more than off and on that one strapped to my pack all the time but i've used your knives off and on for the last probably three years i guess two years for sure um but why don't you tell everybody a little bit about when you got started and kind of you know the transformation and then where you're at now because you, you you're pretty much everywhere now um or all, all over the place and you know kind of tell everybody how that happened and, and your your backstory yeah it's uh it's pretty cool i mean we we kind of seem to be all over the place even though we also are so new that uh I'd say we're probably still mostly unknown, but it, it's, it's definitely been uh, kind of a rocket ship the last couple of years. Um, yeah. I, I mean, to kind of, I'll try to kind of keep it somewhat short and then you can expand on if you want. But I, uh, I started making knives when I was 11. Uh, I was growing up in Lincoln, Montana, which is a small kind of town on the edge of the Bob Marshall wilderness here. Uh, my folks were in the excavation business and I was playing little league baseball and my little league baseball coach was bringing hunting knives that he was making to practice to show the dads. And of course, being an 11 year old boy that loved to fish and wanted to hunt, really, I wasn't hunting at that point. Um, couldn't really hunt till you're 12 here, but, uh, uh, I was intrigued by it and <clears throat> he invited me up to a shop. My parents actually bought me one of his knives for Christmas that year. And he invited me up to a shop to make one. And, I did that. Uh, his name was Rick Dunkerley. I always try to include his name in it. He's still hell of one of the top makers in the world today. But uh, what what was kind of cool about it was, that, you know, he started teaching me. And then pretty quickly he said, hey, if you want to make knives, if you want to be a knife maker, uh, you got to make them in your own shop if you want to be a real knife maker. And I, I think that was also kind of his way of kicking me out of his his shop. Um, but I, I so I, I had a lawn mowing business. And I also was working for my dad. And so any money I would save up, I would, I'd put towards my shop. And, um, I had my stuff set up in my dad's shop and I was starting to make too big of a mess in there. And so he enclosed a, a little lean to out in a machine shed for me and, um, kind of went after it, honestly, uh, before school and after school and, uh, kind of set a goal. I wanted to be the youngest, um, master Smith in the world down the road. So kind of, I guess was driven that way. And so at 15 years old, I, I became the youngest journeyman knife maker in the world. And then at 19 years old, I tested and became the youngest master bladesmith in the world. So, um, it was kind of a cool, 
time that, you know, my parents didn't make knives and my dad actually didn't hunt. He liked to do a little bird hunting, but, uh, you know, I, I like to tell people the reason I got so good so fast was the, the knife world was really sharing. You know, I had a ton of knife makers that would answer any question I had, teach me anything I wanted to know. You know, there was no YouTube. I'm older than the internet, I like to say, which my kids seem make that seems to them like I'm ancient, but, uh, you know, there was no YouTube or, um, really videos to go look at. So you had to go to guys shops. So I, I did a ton of that. And when I was 15, I flew to South Carolina and spent a week with a, a guy I'd never met in his shop, George Heron to learn to make knives and just tried to learn from everybody that I could. And, um, yeah, it went pretty good. So that's kind of how I got my start. Gotcha. So with, uh, you know, what you have going on now. So like, I, uh, how would I explain? I don't think a lot of people understand what a master or what goes, what in, what does it take to become a custom knife maker? Like, can you just one day show up or is it like being an electrician and you have to get a license? Like what are the parameters? What puts you there? Cause it, that gets thrown around a lot of like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bladesmith. I'm a, you know, whatever to truly be uh, at that level. What are the requirements? How long does it take? That kind of stuff. Like you said, you were the youngest. What'd you have to do to, to be the youngest? Yeah, there, uh, you know, really, you can just start making knives and call yourself a bladesmith if you want. Um, and, you know, with the new Forged and, with Forged and Fire on TV and everything, it's, uh, it's a ton of new knife makers. But um, back then, you'd tell somebody you were a full-time knife maker. They'd look at you a little strange. But uh, it's kind of more mainstream now. But, you know, you can call yourself whatever you want. But, you know, the, the in terms of the master bladesmith thing, you, you know, you have to join the American Bladesmith Society just as a paying member. And you have to be a member of that for three years before you're allowed to test for your journeyman. And to test for your journeyman, um, you have to forge a, can't be longer than 10 inches. So a 10 inch blade uh, and heat treat it, do all the work yourself, grind it and all that. And that blade goes through a performance test that you have to do in front of a master bladesmith in his shop. Um, and that blade has to chop a one inch rope in half without, you know, just in one swing, which that really just shows sharpness that you can make a sharp blade. Um, then you have to chop two, two by fours in half as, as many chops as you want. Uh, but without resharpening, once you get through those two by fours, that blade still has to shave hair. And then at that point, you put a third of the blade in a vise and you bend it 90 degrees without breaking it. Um, and that's the performance part. And what that really shows is that you have a good knowledge and control over heat treat and metallurgy. Um, you're selecting the right steel, and then you actually know how to heat treat it. And that test is really cool because it, you know, the blade has to be hard enough to be durable enough to hold an edge while chopping through two by fours. But if you make it too hard, when you bend it and you flex it like that, it'll it'll crack or break. And so you have to find that sweet spot. And that's really what, you know, spinning forward, I've tried to do today with our with our knives is is find that sweet spot of, you know, as, as, a, as a user of a knife, you need that thing to have some toughness, not just hardness, but has to be tough. So once you do that performance part, you have to fly to the Atlanta Blade Show and present your uh, five knives, finished blades, to a panel of Master Smith judges. 
and they judge the fit and finish of that knife, uh, your design, how well executed you built that knife, all that stuff. Um, you know, and at the journeyman level, you have to show that you're proficient, you know, they don't have to necessarily be perfect, but they have to be pretty goddamn good. Um, and then once you're a journeyman, you have to be a journeyman for at least two years before you're allowed to test for master. You know, I, I, I got mine at 15, but at 17, I definitely wasn't ready to test. So, you know, I waited till I was, I did the performance, I guess when I was 18 and did the, uh, I was 19 when I passed in Atlanta. But with that, uh, with that, uh, test, you actually have to do that with a 300 layer Damascus blade that you forged. So that, that, that same performance test has to be done with Damascus steel. Um, and then you have to, you have to present the same five knives, uh, or another five knives to that panel of judges in Atlanta again. But this time you have to have one blade. That's a quillion dagger. It's just a really hard, hard to execute knife. That's easy to screw up. Um, and four other knives, but this time they have to be on point. I mean, there's no, there's no room for error on those five knives. Um, and they're very hard on you. So, you know, when I passed, I think I was somewhere around 80 or 85 in the world today. I think there's 130 or 40 in the world. Um, I will say like, you don't have to be a master bladesmith to be an amazing knife maker that, you know, I always point that out. There's a ton of knife makers out there that, that don't forge or that, that choose to do a different path and they're fucking good. They're really good, you know? So, um, my, the guy that know, actually just, just cause you haven't built my house to do that. Doesn't, oh, sorry. yeah. He, he's a, a knife no. maker and, uh, he had talked about, and I, I'm not all, I, I mean, I have an addiction to knives badly. Like, like, like literally I have a problem, but I don't, uh, yeah geek out like i don't go to blade shows or or i guess a lot i think that one one was in washington maybe which is weird for a blade show to be in portland or seattle but whatever um yeah the he was talking about he never tested to be a master bladesmith uh he forges his knives and i you know so you see a lot well let me rewind for there are multiple different ways to make a knife, but the you know you look at stamped knives, which are more you know you you can make more of them at one time. They just stamp them and then you you build them from there. And then there's forged where you're beating the living shit out of a piece of metal. Um, this is the right. very redneck way to explain it. Talk about the differences in those two, right? Because you do both or can do both. And then talk yep. about the differences in the steel, because that people ask me that all the time. What's the best steel for a hunting knife? What should, you know, this, that, yep. whatever. And, and uh, you know, for me, um, there, well, you know what, you're the master. I'm going to shut up. Take it from there. <laughs> yeah. Well, so forging and grinding, forging and grinding, it's actually kind of interesting. It was almost like the Crips and the Bloods back in the day. Um, you know, the Knife Makers Guild, which was an organization that was pretty much all made of guys who did what they, you call stock removal. You just you, you cut the blade out on a bandsaw or you grind it out, um, whatever. And, you know, there's and then there's the forging guys. The American Bladesmith Society is more the forging route. You know, I, I happen to get in with a group of guys teaching me that I'll forge. So that's kind of what I learned. Um, now, uh, back in the day, the forging guys that you know, would say, oh, those, you know, ground knives are soulless, heartless blades and, you know, our blades cut better and perform better. Sounds like traditional and, archers. You know, the, 
Yeah, and I'll I'll be honest with you. I, I've kind of pissed people off, and I'll probably piss some you know traditional guys off today. It it, it doesn't matter if your blade's forged, cut out, ground out, whatever. What really matters is what steel you choose and how you heat treat it, and then how you grind the the blade as far as your edge geometries and stuff like that. Um, in the end, it's all it's all steel. Now, actually, technically. You, you can actually, if you forge it, it, you know, too hot for too long, you can actually have the reverse effect and you can actually, you know, cause damage to the steel by burning too much carbon out of the blade. So, you know, I'd say, and I'm a forging guy, but, I, you know, if you forge wrong, uh, you, you can actually do damage to the steel. So, uh, you know, there's, there's actually forging adds a lot of complications, which is part of why when I see a blade that's absolutely gorgeous and it's done perfectly and it's forged you know i might have a bit more respect for that maker because he's got a skill set that um you know some of these amazing soccer removal guys just don't have i mean to be able to make damascus steel or to forge and quite frankly when you're done forging that blade's kind of fucked up i mean it's it's you know it's been hammered on so you have to know how to straighten it you're not starting with a perfectly flat stock of steel um but that being said, from the performance side, you know, really forging was born from the need to forge because back in the day, if you needed to make a wagon wheel or you needed to make a, a sword, if you know, as a samurai or whatever, uh, you know, you, you might have had a piece of steel that's one size, but you need it to be, you know, you need to have a shape in it. It needs to be wider. And they would actually use forging as a way to utilize material more effectively. You weren't going to just ban thought out and throw that shit away. Um, you know, I can take a piece of steel that's eight inches long and I can make two knives out of it that, a that a stock removal guy can only make one cause he's, he's wasting it. Now today doesn't really matter. You just go to the store and buy more steel, but back in the day you weren't going to waste that stuff. Um, so that that's kind of the deal on the forging versus stock removal. Um, you, you know, it's uh, now in regards to like your friend or other people. What I always say with that is, there's absolutely guys that are on Master Smith level that have never taken the test. But what I will say is, I've seen plenty of guys out there say, "Well, I could I could pass that if I just put the time in, or if I could pass that if I just went and did it." Well, put your put your money where your mouth is. I mean. Um, I totally understand why guys, uh, maybe don't want to take the time to do it. I don't think it's going to change your career if you do it. Um, but it is to lay your knives out in front of your peers and be judged and have everybody, you know, at the Atlanta blade show, know you're doing it. Um, that honestly, it kind of takes some balls to do that. Uh, you know, so there's, that's what I'd say about that. But there's, that doesn't mean for a second that there's not amazing guys out there that don't have that, um, that credential. It's kind of like getting a master's degree in business. You can still be a real piece of shit. Um, or you can duck hunt your way out of college like I did and run a multi-million dollar company someday. <laughs> so I'm kind of with you on that it, one. It doesn't necessarily mean everything, you know, I've seen guys pass their master bladesmith test and then think they made it and get worse. Um, quite frankly, my, my master bladesmith set is uh, a far cry from where I am today as a maker. Cause I, I, I really think as when you pass that test, it's your beginning of learning. Like you've gotten good enough to, to apply techniques and to do things to improve. So, 
I'm pretty big on, I, I think passing that test is really the beginning of your learning, not, not the final end of it, you know? So with that and, uh, you know, so I, uh, admittedly, I carry two knives. One of them, I have a interchangeable blade knife for breaking down animal. Yeah. And you would think I slept with my sister for some guys. It's fun. I've been unfollowed by knife makers for talking about that. I had uh, a specific knife maker send me a video of hatcheting out with a knife, the rib cage off a moose said, try that with your scalpel or whatever. I'm like, yeah, man. It, I mean, yeah, it's like saying, Hey, uh, you know, let, let me go, you know, take this day through a mud bog, you know, it's specific purposes. So, I carry a fixed right. blade and I carry that scalpel type knife. And, you know, it's not that um, for, you know, when I say this is for, for backpack hunting, right? Um, well, I say that I do that all the time. My, my need is, yeah. is, you know, for each one is different. Now I will a hundred percent and I'll carry some folding knives, but a hundred percent, I will break down an animal with my fixed blade, my, my scalpel type knife, my folding knife, you know, whatever's there, I'll use it. Like with your speed goat, I just have that. It's got like a Kydex sheath. I have it strapped to my pack on the outside all the time. That could be anything from cutting down a sapling. That could be breaking down an animal. Uh, that could be shaving, um, you know, making some fire, uh, like fire starter or popping off, uh, right. you know, popping off a neck, uh, you know, whatever. That can be difficult. And, and, you know, so, you know, for mine, I don't use it just to break my fixed blade. I don't use it just to break down animals. The big question that I get, keeping the scalpel shit out of the equation here is, What's the best material? And I'm like, guys, you want to dive down a rabbit hole? Google that shit, right? Because like, there is no best. It's best for the application and best for you because you've got like carbon steel, tool steel, stainless steel. You can, and so you like, right. um, you know, for, for me and I'll, you know, the, um, I, there's a couple that I have found that I, that I really personally like. One of them's M4. Other than Damascus, yeah, M4, and then the uh, S35VN. I I do like both of those S30. I guess the other one's S30VN. But talk about those. Talk about what you use. What you why you like those, and then talk about the hardness. What do you think is yeah. best for people to get? Yeah, um, there's a lot there, so I'll kind of go through it. When it comes to the replaceable blade stuff, uh, I, I I actually completely kind of understand for certain guys why they like those, especially guides who are, you know, they might head into Northwest territories for in mid August and, you know, be in there for three months. Right. And, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of animals and I, I understand that the, the quick change ability to just grab a new sharp blade. Um, I, I personally am not a fan of, of, of it for kind of your exclusive knife. And, and this is why one, uh, there's, there's a few reasons, uh, you know, we, we don't pass things down as a, as a, as a human species right now, everything's made to throw away basically. And for generations, we've been passing down guns, knives, art, and jewelry. Those are the four things that I, you know, maybe a custom car or, you know, an old antique car or something like that. But Guns and knives as men is generally what we pass down. And, I, and I've and i seen over 30 years of making knives, thousands of knives come in my shop for people to ask me to sharpen. Um, 
that was like grandpa's old knife or my dad's knife or great grandfather's knife. And it never matters what the knife is. It can be the most simple old timer or um, buck knife or whatever. It doesn't matter what the knife is. It's never generally like a real fancy high end custom. What matters is who carried it and, and what they did with it. And, uh, you know, when you're 35, 40 years old, you don't really think anybody's going to give a shit. You're just using a tool. Um, but down the road, there's going to be a grandson or granddaughter or somebody that's going to go like, this was my grandma's, you know, chef's knife or my grandpa's hunting knife or pocket knife. And, uh, I just don't like the idea that when you walk in target today, there's not a thing in that store that's not made to throw away. And, you know, even furniture used to be made to be able to be passed down and shit. I was trying to find stuff for my office. You can't even find anything that's quality made hardly, you know, in a store. Um, now as far as the, the replaceable blade thing goes, the people that do want to carry those, I understand, but especially the kind of hunting that, that you do and that most of my friends do, if you're leaving that truck and you're going for overnight, um, I absolutely think you should have a, a fixed blade on you. Um, I've heard a lot of horror stories with, yeah, with replaceable blades of guys. They they forget to bring extra blades. They break one off and they go to grab more and they're out. And now they don't even have a goddamn knife. Um, you know, I, I've definitely heard of people breaking them off a ton. I've gotten actually pictures of people breaking. They break pretty easy. So they broke off when you're going around a diaphragm and now they're floating around in the cavity while you're trying to finish. Um, but, I, I get it. I, I think a big reason they got so popular, and this leads into your next part of your question, they got so popular because people couldn't sharpen. And I don't know how many people have walked into my shop and just said, I suck at sharpening. I can't sharpen. And they, they asked me to do it, and they hand their knives to me. And they're the thickest damn bull nose, bull, bull nose edge on them, um, heavy, hold, hold, hold hard on. as hell, stainless hold, steel. Hold yeah, on. don't don't skip ahead because I was, <laughs> I kind of have a layout of this, uh, if you don't mind, because okay. like the I, as well, you can I'll go into the steel then. Yeah, because you can imagine, I I get you see my Q and As and everything like. There's nothing that hasn't been thrown across my plate. I'm not going to toss you up a softball here shortly because I've been handed one. I'm yeah. like. What the fuck is the angle on that thing? You got a, a fucking hatchet. Uh, yeah, so we'll yeah. talk about that in a minute. So anyway, sorry. <laughs> so, so part of that is is steel selection. So to your steel question, um, guys will tell me, well, I got this knife at home. It's uh, you know, it's 68 Rockwell. It's like the hardest knife on the market. It's like, well, congratulations. Uh, it, you're, you're probably holding a piece of glass. And the reason that blade weighs a pound and is so damn thick is because the factory knows that if they made it thin, uh, it, it would be brittle as hell. And that's back to the test that I did to become a master smith. You know, what I will say about that test is a lot of these guys make knives and sell them, but they never test them like to failure. You know, they, they make knives and they sell them to their friends or they make knives and they sell them online. But how many of those guys do you see stick a pipe on the end of that handle and break that blade in the vise. And then how many of those guys really know what it means when you look at the grain of the steel? Is it milky and nice and fine? Or is it super crystallized and, and heavy coarse grain and, and clearly you screwed up your heat treat? Um, that, that testing process makes you actually test your own shit and know 
that whether you're set, what you're selling is actually good or if you're actually full of shit, frankly. And, uh, pretty doesn't gut out animals. Um, performance does. And it's, I'll take performance over pretty, even though I can make the prettiest knives with the best of them. Um, our MKC knives aren't actually, they're purposely simple, uh, to not be the fanciest looking thing. They're just supposed to work, you know? And so with steel, uh, the goal is to find a steel that has the ability to get hard, but all still beats remain tough. And so, uh, you know, we use in our carbon steel, our higher carbon steel, we use 52100 steel, which is a ball bearing steel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been on the market forever. And ball bearings are made to resist wear in industry. That's, that's their job. They've been resisting wear in industry for a hundred years. Um, what do you want your knife blade to do you you want that edge to resist wear now that being said you don't want your ball bearing to crack um you know to be too hard and crack and that's the beautiful thing about that steel is it has a really nice balance where it 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 gets hard and it resists wear um you know you can take one of our knives and take like a brass rod and at about a 30 degree angle press on that brass rod and you're going to see the edge flex up in the light you're going to actually see it kind of reflect off the edge and when you let up that edge is going to flex. It's going to go back to where it came from. And that's a really good test for people. If, if you can't flex your edge, your edge is too thick. And if you do try it and it chips out, it's too hard. And if it stays bent, it's too soft. And again, these are those things that, uh, you're trying to select a steel and heat treat it in a way that you have a kind of best of both worlds, you know, now like S 35 or S 30 VN, very wear resistant steel, very good. Uh, I would argue that there's a steel out there that's actually better that just came out about a year ago, made by the very same company, uh, Niagara Steel, Niagara Specialty Metals in New York. They make the same steel, but Laren Thomas actually invented this new steel called MagnaCut. And basically it's the properties of an S30, you know, or S35VN, um, but with some differences in the, in the uh, makeup of the steel to give it a way higher level of toughness. And that's your, that's your ability for that blade to take side to side flex or the edge to take flex and not break or chip. And it's kind of a game changer. You know, it's one of the only steels that's been created specifically for knife making kind of like our 5200. That steel was actually created to make ball bearings and knife makers just got resourceful and used it. Um, most steels are made to do something else and then knife makers figure out it works good and they use it like spring steel, the old springs in cars, you know, that's 5160. Um, it's a great steel for knives. It's really tough, but that magna cut, uh, really has a lot of those same properties from a edge holding, re- uh, you know, ability, but it's, 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 t- it's a lot tougher. If you look at a steel chart, uh, you know, these companies do testing, and they rank the, the, the basically uh, toughness versus the hardness. So, and wear resistance, the wear resistance is called a catcher test. And it, it measures the, the amount of basically cuts that that edge can make before it goes dull. So, so when, I, uh, I, like I say, I, I kind of tend to run off, but you know, you, we laugh about it. I mean, we could talk for an entire show just about one one of these topics. Well, we're going to talk about this one just a, a little bit more because, you know, before, and it'll kind of lead into the sharpening and the, the edge. So 
With, and I do want to say that I 100% agree with what everything Josh said about the interchangeable mm-hmm. blade and the fixed blade. You should never go into the wild without a fixed blade knife. And it does not need to be, I'm not talking some shit that, you know, Jeremiah Johnson carried. It just has to be a functional size that is fairly durable and moderately to lightweight. Like the one, the speed, the speed goat I have from you, I think it's one point. What the hell? It's light as shit, right? It's it, the sheath is as heavy as the damn knife. It's, it is light. Um, so it's not a bother. And, yeah. and I want to make sure and, and, and talk about that. Cause I do, I do use that interchangeable, you know, blade when I break at, at times anyway, when I break down animals, but that one I will die in the wild when it comes to survival, right? It's just not worth a fuck for anything but one specific thing. And even when it comes down to like, I mean, you'll watch doomsdayers and preppers that do some, you know, t- you know, take a rock and they're hammering the shit out of their knife into a, a, a pecker pole and cut it down or yeah, got to have a fixed blade to do that. Like that's important. But when it comes to the steels, Right now, off the top of my head, I can think of 30 different types of of knife material, and everyone has their own little voodoo witchcraft. I left yours out when I was talking before because I, I, I already knew like what you were, I didn't say no, but I've heard you talk about it before and I've read about it. The thing is, is when you look at certain, um, like talk like D2 um, tool steel, Talk about that yep. one. That's a big one. What are the neg? I, I mean, I know what the negative is for me for it, but talk about that one. What is good or what is bad about D two? Uh, it's a really good steel. I mean, it, it resists wear really well. Um, you know, quite well. Uh, it. What, what I will say about D two about any carbon steel, frankly, D two somewhat somewhat stain resistant, but not but not really. I mean, it's still a carbon steel. Um, it, uh, it for any of these companies that do mass production, it's really hard with carbon steels because they're just harder to finish. It's, um, and people then don't want to deal with, and we deal with this too, with people writing in saying, you know, hey, my edge got a little rusty or, or the logo's rusty. Um, they don't want to deal with that customer service issue. So there's that. And it's also just a little more difficult to uh, kind of get finished correctly to not have it it rust where like we parkerize them, but that's an added step that frankly, a couple steps in there that we don't have to do with a stainless blade. Um, uh, D two doesn't quite have the, the toughness that like a 52 100 has. Um, and then for, for most knife makers, it's actually really finicky to heat treat. So if you get a D two knife from 10 different knife makers, um, you're going to probably have eight different results. Um, I, I think it's going to be not super consistent for just the general custom knife maker, unless they're, you know, they have heat treat ovens and they're doing a lot of testing. Gotcha. So I'm going to bounce all over just a little bit. Uh, VG VG ten. Yeah. You know, I don't have a hell of a lot of experience. I know it definitely doesn't have the toughness level. It gets really hard and it makes a great chef's knife. Um, you see guys using that in chef's knives a lot. Um, there again, I think in the, uh, you know, in like the, in the charts that you look at, it just doesn't have the toughness that, um, again, that break that to keep from breaking like a 52 and hundred blade does. Okay. Gotcha. And then 
you know, with like I mentioned, like M4 um, is 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 one that that um, I think that's newer. But like when you or what do you have this S? What is the other one? The C. Good Lord, there's so many of these. For, what is it? Well, there's CPM Magna. There's CPM Magna Cut. Um, there's uh, yeah, there's CPM 154. There's S90 V, S30 V, S45 VN. I mean, there's just a shit ton, you know. Um, the M4 is a is a good carbon steel. Um, it's a really good steel, actually. I haven't messed with it from a standpoint of trying to do it in mass production. Um, it's a tough steel. Like it, it, that's that's a really good steel, quite frankly. Well, and when when I the only reason I'm bringing these up is you you it 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 doesn't matter whether it's backpacks, boots, or whatever. Everyone has their own sales pitch, right? And when I say that, yeah. when you go to buy a product, right, you, the, the person selling the product they carry is obviously, whether it be for monetary reasons or they truly believe it's the best, going to sell you on a specific knife material if that you know and so yeah when, when what gets confusing or what maybe isn't as confusing is like and i want you to talk about this and this will lead into sharpening and, and edge retention for me i just want a knife that is holds an edge fairly well and that you know is is moderately weight right or or, or, or doesn't weigh a whole lot right it has some durability to it and then on the sharpening side, for me, when I get a knife, brand new or not, right? When I get and, and, and I, it can shave, it's a, it's super sharp. I immediately I'm I'm I use um it, it's just a work sharp little hand sharpener. I resharpen yeah. it with that to make sure that that angle um that that is on that. Then you might make fun of me for this, but it matches right, so I don't have to start from scratch. That way, when I get in the field. And it doles up. I've already married it up to that knife sharpener that I have, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. You know, because the angles may not be exact, and I have to start from ground up to to resharpen it. It, it, I'm, I'm going to have to rehone the edge or reangle it or whatever you want to call it. So I don't make myself sound any stupider than I already have. Take it from there. Talk about those things: the edge, the angle, sharpening that stuff. When an, a steeper angle or a hatchet type angle might be better for what what type knife that stuff. Yeah. And that's exactly right. Like the steeper that angle, um, then the more kind of resistance that edge is going to take to, to shock. So like a, like an ax or a hatchet or, or even like a, like a chopping knife, like a camp knife, if you're chopping kindling or doing a lot of wood stuff, you're going to want that steeper angle. Um, you know, with edge geometry, it's not just the edge, but it's actually kind of what's behind the edge and that say that first quarter inch, um, that's where with guys bringing knives into my shop, uh, you know, they're so heavy behind that edge. When, when you sharpen, you're, you're removing steel from the knife blade. You're, you're, you're grinding steel away from that edge. And it's going to be much easier to do in a blade that's thin, you know, say like replaceable blade thin compared to big, heavy chopper knife thin and, or thick. And, uh, that's really, I think one of the reasons that, replaceable blades people have been a fan of those also is they're so thin they also move through material nice nicely right uh with less resistance which also puts less pressure on your edge which results in you know um 
and it wearing out, the more pressure it has on it for the longer amount of time. So that's actually why we make our blades so thin is if you know how to heat treat them, you don't, I don't want you to carry any more weight up the mountain than you need to carry. Um, in fact, that's why we skeletonize our blades and all that stuff. But, uh, from the edge angle perspective, you know, I always tell people that 17 to 20 degree angle is really good. You know, for a chef's knife in the kitchen, that's dead thin, uh, you know, 15 degrees, 17 degrees right in there, uh, works really well. Um, but not having that weight behind that edge, that bull nose edge that you see people have on their blades, um, that stuff really keeps you all that extra material keeps you from getting that that nice angle that you're looking for. Um, and that's a, that's a absolute key. And that's part of why our knives are so easy. Um, or people have found them easier to resharpen is quite frankly, it's just that edge geometry. Um, a lot of factories never want to have a knife break. I mean, they don't want to deal with the PR of that. So they'll make their knives thicker and heavier to keep the, the dumbass from breaking this tip off. Well, I, I actually kind of go the other way. I, I figure like if you want to take elk ivories out, don't pry it with the tip of your knife. Like we're not making screwdrivers, you know, we're making blades to cut. Uh, as you know, that speed goat's not made for heft. Um, it's not a pry bar. Uh, they're made to cut. And, you know, we make heavier knives for shit that if you want to really get after it and pry on shit and stuff like that. But I would rather, I mean, I think out of, 30 or 40,000 blades we did last year. We probably had two or three back with broken tips, maybe five. Um, and they were all guys that admitted like, ah, I was doing something I shouldn't have done. Um, so that edge geometry is key. Uh, as far as sharpeners go, um, those, you know, we sell some workshop sharpeners on our site. I also really like the DMT, uh, DMT diamond stones. Um, that's what I use you know, for and I've my got a YouTube video. Yeah, I've got a YouTube video that kind of shows how how I sharpen. Uh, you know, I you know I generally you know a six hundred to a thousand grit on an on an edge to kind of finish and then and then strop it. You know, on the back of your belt or or on a knife strop. Um, we just had strops made for our site because people couldn't find a damn knife strop to buy. I was actually a, a bit surprised by that, but. Um, and we could go down a whole rabbit hole of how to sharpen, but that's really the key. And, you know, some of those steels you name like an M4, uh, that's where you start getting into a little bit of that marketing where that M4 and some other steels like S90V, they hold an edge out of the box really, really well. But boy, once you've lost that edge, and trust me, every knife, including ours, is going to go dull. Once you've lost that edge, my question is, is can, can the average customer with a half-assed stone get it back? And that's where a lot of those super high wear-resistant steels that have a lot of vanadium added and, and, you know, a bunch of carbides to it, they, they tend to be a bitch to resharpen for a customer. And uh, I'd kind of argue in the field, if you carry it for an entire season, you're not going to notice a giant difference in the field, but you're going to sure as hell notice when you can't resharpen it. Um, you know, so that's, that's some of it with this wear resistant, you'll look at charts and the wear resistance, usually like M4, usually the wear resistance is kind of off the charts. It's way high in a bar graph. 
and then you'll see the toughness is real low. Um, so you, you kind of give up some toughness for that, for that wear resistance, you know? Well, and, so and there again, you're trying to find that sweet spot. Yeah. And that's kind of what I, you know, when you kind of pick your, your battles, right. You're not going to go street race in a Ford F-350, but you're not going to, you know, tow a trailer in a Ferrari or whatever. You got to, you got to know what you really right. want yourself. And the knife sharpening thing, like I have those, uh, the DMT, uh, stone set for, for broadheads. And then I've got a bunch of the, yeah. wor- the work sharp stuff and it's just, you know, it, it simplifies it for me. It's got a little cheater angle guard. Um, you know, they're not super expensive. Uh, you know, somebody that takes maybe sharpening a lot more serious than me might be yelling at the, um, you know, computer right now saying it's got plastic in it. I've just had good luck with them. I carry them in my, my backpack. I got one of my yeah. console, whatever. But, but, uh, I mean, if somebody was going to go purchase like a mobile, uh, sharpener and then something maybe at home, cause like I've got a grinder and, and buffer wheels that I use kind of like, uh, like a strop almost, I guess you would say is my, the, the wheels yep. or whatever. Um, but if somebody wants to buy a system, what would you suggest some of the different options that are from like beginner level, like here's your angle guide and shit to all the way up to like no angle guide needed? Because I've seen sharpening stones for like a grand and and they can get expensive. Yeah, you can get out. of You can get a bit out of control. I, I And it's funny, I, in six months, I might even have a better answer for that because I'm working with a couple different companies trying to develop a couple specialized things, but, uh, a couple things. One work sharp has those kind of belt grinders that you talk about. Um, Ken onion model. I think, I think one of them like the Ken, Ken onion. Exactly. Yeah. What I would say with those is those work great for those knives that are just way too heavy and way too thick. And I think that's why they became so popular is people could actually move some freaking steel, you know, they're, they're grinding away on their sharpening stone. They're not getting anywhere and they hit it on a belt. I will say our blades are so thin that I've seen some guys really fuck some shit up <laughs> with those grinders at home because when you hit our edges with those, uh, there's, you know, we, we take our speed goat down, our, our edge on our speed goat's 12,000 thick. So you don't have a lot of room to play with those grinders. So the grinders are great for the other thicker blades. Um, the, the work sharp, uh, they have some really nice, like you said, angle, uh, deals, like on the end of even their bench stones, they got like a 20 degree angle on a 15 or a 17 that you can like flip the little plastic thing. And that really helps people get their angle. Right. Uh, I do tell people, I think sometimes they worry too much about angle and not necessarily enough about, uh, the grid of their stone and kind of the process. That's, that's, that's why I've done a couple of videos to show that, you may have to start with a heavy grit stone, you know, 220 or a 320 grit stone and just get after it and remove some steel and get your angle right. And then step down to a 600 or 800 or a thousand grit stone to kind of finish that edge and, and then strop it. Um, DMT has some really nice, you know, if, if I had the perfect setup, I guess what I, what I'd say with that with hunters is have a good like eight or 10 inch bench stone in your garage at home or in your shop. But out in the field, uh, DMT has a really nice little folding diamond stone. It's like three and a half, four inches long, but it folds into a plastic handle that makes it about two and a half or so, it, three inches long. I, th- um, I think I have this. It looks like a butterfly knife, right? Yeah, butterfly knife. Exactly. Yeah, okay. 
that and thing it's is all badass. folded out. Yeah, <laughs> it's eight or nine inches all folded out. Uh, that's kind of my favorite in the field carrying your pack deal. Uh, same thing. WorkSharp has uh, some little V, some little V deals that kind of have your angle set. You pull your blade through. They're kind of cheap um, little knives. All that kind of stuff really in the field is to just get the job done. It's to get you through an animal. Touch up your blade real quick. Your hands are freezing. It's dark. Like throw an edge quick back on there and go about right back to work. And a lot of times your edge isn't necessarily gone as much as the the edge is just loaded up with fat and shit. And you just need to kind of hone it real quick and and get back down to steel. You know, um, as that edge is starting to go dull. But once you get back home, then use that larger bench stone. WorkSharp has some really nice, you know, there's India stones that are more of like an oil stone. Uh, don't worry, oil versus water, you know, it doesn't really matter. Both of those stones, if you have a water stone, though, you have to have water on it. Uh, otherwise, you'll really screw up the stone. Um, I have a nice India uh, oil stone, like an Arkansas, Arkansas stone. Um, that works really well. So I like those combination stones. I think a guy should have those at home where you got a rough side and a finer side. Gotcha. So with the, the, the um, I want to make sure for everybody listening in, I'm going to, I sent you a picture a second ago of what I use for like your speed goat for my mobile system. I can go on that okay. speed goat from like, but like balls ass doll, like, you know, just smoked it on an elk and it's only, yep. I don't know, a couple minute process, you know, to, to get it to where I'm shaving with it again. And I've never timed it, but yep. it's, it's quick. Um, might be closer to we a minute. Those on our site. That thing I yeah. sent you. That's their guided, that, that guided field sharpener, they call it. Um, and we, we sell those cause I, so here's what I do, Aaron. And I love that trick thing. You might like, you know what I do with that? Uh, those plates held, are held on there with magnets, right? Yeah. Um, I take those plates off and I just put the plates in my pack. Yes. Um, well, and I just you're stealing my I'll just secrets. Set that, I'll just set those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's smart, though. Yeah, that, I that's, get rid of the weight. I glued them together. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't need the uh, the ceramic side out in the field. Uh, mm-hmm. It's so fine. It's not really something I need. That. Um, but yeah, I just take the. Um, the plates, like you said, glue them together and I just get rid of the bulk and the length. Um, and I just put it in my kill kit. Well, and it, at first for people listening in, I would say, get kind of used to the angle, get, get, you know, and this is, yeah, I agree with yeah. you. The angle's not that important, but you know, get kind of used to it. It kind of becomes second nature. And then, you know, when you've got, uh, you know, cause I'll just put it on like, a a log that's flipped over and the bark's falling off. And I got a little, you know, where it's kind of gripping to it a little bit. Um, hold the one end yeah. and go back and forth. Pretty simple. I can get that thing shaving sharp quick. Um, you know, and then the one on my center console, I keep it mag, you know, on the little apparatus it comes with. Um, you know, I have one of my traveling duffel. They're like, I don't know what they are. What are they on your site? Like 34 bucks or something. I didn't look. Yeah, something like that, 30 bucks. Um, I don't even know. Yeah, they're they're handy. I mean, especially if you need practice sharpening, it does help you from screwing up. But the one thing I do when I get, you know, my knife is I do resharpen it immediately on that. So I'm not like 
taking away a ton of, you know, I'm not taking, it's not taking me longer as I'm breaking down an animal to resharpen it. Cause I've already got the angle on it that that sharpener gives me. Is that shitty advice? Cause I, I found it to help, but maybe it's all in my mind. You do that when you get the knife brand new. I do. And then I resharpen it on that to make sure the angles are more or less mimicked for the most part. If, uh, if I take a little black Sharpie and get it on my, put it down the edge of my knife and kind of just run one quick swipe down each side where I can see like, okay, it's matching perfect. I don't worry about it as much, but if it's a little bit different to where it's like, okay, this may take me longer to resharpen it. I will resharpen it when I get it. You might be yelling at yeah. your phone right now, but it, it seems to have helped because I've had a couple knives where I went to sharpen them the initial time after it dulling. Took much longer than it should have, it seemed like, because I was having to get some steel off there uh, to kind of mimic the angle. But don't, you're yeah, not going to hurt I, my feelings. Gonna, Am I stupid? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you are. No. <laughs> it happens. Uh, I, I'm going to be I'm going to be biased. Uh, I would say that's probably a. And, and again, I'm, I'm really biased, but I'm going to say that probably is a really good idea to do Aaron with, with a lot of knives that I see, like, I'll be honest with you. And this gets into why I started Montana knife company. But when I walk in the store and I pick up knives and, you know, in sportsman's warehouse or shield or something like that. One angle on one side um, is different than the other. Oh my <laughs> God. They're fucking ridiculous. I mean, the, 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 and basically every knife in there is, is actually what I consider dull. And, and so I would say that's probably a really good idea to do Aaron for a lot of people. When you get ours, don't do that. I didn't, ours, no, I didn't and do we ours. Ad, <laughs> we advertise with ours. Um, and I'm proud of this, uh, that we're the absolutely the sharpest knife on the market out of the box. And, um, we, we take pride in that. And I, I would tell, most people, you know, and ours are so thin and our angle is basically right there that you're not going to have a problem on that little guided sharpener. Um, once our knives do start to lose their edge, like just go to work on those and they're, and our blades are so thin that it's not going to take you much work. Um, so yeah, I would say on ours, don't do that. Uh, cause ours are, are scary ass sharp when you get them. Um, but they will, you know, they go dull like any knife and, and that's a good little sharpener to have. That's kind of, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Aaron, uh, for years, um, I was a full-time custom knife maker and I was making really high end knives. Uh, you know, when I say high end, I mean two to five, 10 grand a piece, uh, custom knives and art knives basically. And, I also am a hunter and I was going into these stores and I was seeing what, what, what hunters were, were having to choose from for knives and, and what they were bringing me to resharpen. And I was like, man, I, I absolutely know we can do better as, as like, there's, there's a company out there that can do better. And you know, the, the one thing I would say is with a lot of these big brand knife companies out there, the most recognizable brands, the guys designing those knives, trust me, the guys that are designing those knives are not hunters. Um, I know this for a fact. And it, it bothered me for years that, um, you know, we'll spend all this money, you know, we'll spend 
three or four or 500 bucks um, or more on a, on a pack. And we'll spend all this money on base layers and, you know, optics. all your sick gear, your Kuyu, all your optics, your, your spotting scope, even though you hunt in timber in Montana, you're buying a, you know, 95, you know, Swaro, all this stuff, a, a long range rifle, even though, again, you hunt in timber in Montana, <laughs> you know, some sniper rifle and all that stuff. And you'll stick a night force scope on it. And then they'd spend $19 on a knife or not even take a fixed blade. And, you know, quite frankly, you can do with almost, you can do without a ton of your gear that you take. If you forget a headlamp, it'll suck, but you can probably get by. If you, if you forget your binos, you can, you can still go kill something. If you don't have a knife and something's dead, you're screwed. And, uh, that was one of the things that I just felt that we could do. Like we are hunters running a knife company. Like, you know, it's actually amazing. Even some of these influencers for these other big brands are being told, don't send us kill photos. Don't send us, you know, send us landscape pictures, but don't send us pictures of a dead elk. Yeah, I, I like, actually well, can tell you right now, there's three that I have no issue mentioning, but out of this respect for you, I won't, but it pissed me the fuck off because I'm like, so you're sucking money from these guys, but you're anti-hunting, you know, and, and three of yeah. them are big companies in the outdoor world. Um, yeah. And, um, hmm? and uh, yeah, I said, yes, they no, are. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Jerry was mimic or mouthing words of companies to me to see if that was, uh, one of them. Anyway, um, when, when, when you look at these knives, you talk about the $20 knife and the, you know, whatever, um, the, the cheaper knives, a lot of times a folding knife is something may grab people may grab as well. And while I don't mind having a, I keep a folding knife in my pocket around town. I'm, I would not suggest a folding knife in the wild. Um, it, it's just not, there's nicknames for them and stuff, but yeah, you got to have a lot, hell of a lot more probability of that thing breaking in the field on a folder. Yeah. You want to, you want a fixed blade. And, you know, I, I, I probably, you would laugh at my house. I have knives everywhere, right? I'm like a knife junkie and some of them are for looks, right? Like I had a custom knife built a long time ago. You're going to laugh at this, right? And I didn't know what I was doing. It had an amazing handle uh, that was built off an animal that I had shot, and the knife looked really, really, really cool. Um, and then I dulled it, and it literally, I thought, I'm going to have to put this thing in a vise and sharpen it like my axe with a, a fucking file. Like, this is horrible. Yeah. It should sharpen itself. And, and this was a lot of money for me, right? It was like 900 bucks or something. So, But not as much as, yeah. you know, they can get up there. Um yeah. And, and I was young and dumb and imp I didn't know what I was doing. And so when you look at like your speed goat, like you talk a little bit flexible, very user friendly in the field, sharpens easy with what you did when you were doing custom knives, what was your number one? Fuck. I hope somebody doesn't buy this. this did, how often did you have to talk somebody out of something? Did people have like misconceptions of knives or was it pretty much you walked them through it from beginning to end and, you know, got them exactly what they wanted. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm almost curious, right? It's not like I order custom knives every day where, you know, I'm getting on the horn and send a guy an antler. Yeah, no, I, with the custom knives, I, I, no matter how pretty they were, 
they're still just made out of the same steel that we always use for, you know, our good working knives. And so, um, not 52 and hundred, the ball bearing steel that we use has too high a chromium content and you can't forge weld it to another steel. So we would use like 1080 or 1095, which is a high carbon tool steel. Um, but I, even, even my prettiest knives, I always heat treated as if they were a using knife. Now it's actually kind of funny. I, I did have a couple customers buy like $3,000 knives that were gold inlaid and all this shit. And then like six months later, they sent me a picture with it laying on a dead elk and it's just full of blood and shit. And I'm like, damn, you're, you're rolling in cash. If that's your hunting knife. Um, you know, cause most of my knives went on a, in a case or on a shelf, uh, you know, just got shown around. But, uh, the, the, the knives that you see, like if you go to my custom website, um, you know, with my, with my custom knives, the knives that are blued, uh, blue and purple and gold, those are, those, that's the, those blades are actually heated to get that color. And, um, the first time you dive into meat or, or some kind of an animal with those, they're going to definitely discolor and look like shit. So those were definitely the ones I was like, man, and, and they're kind of delicate. If you throw that pocket knife in your pocket with a bunch of change, um, that bluing finish tends to scratch or rub off. Um, you know, it's just, it's like gun bluing. Those, those gun blued guns aren't meant to have a bunch of wear and a bunch of metal scratching on them, you know? So that was, it was more from an aesthetic standpoint than a, uh, than a using standpoint. But I do look back at some of the knives I made when I was 14, 15 years old. And I was like, damn, those blades weren't ground real well. But, uh, yeah, that's with the customs. That's why I say, you know, kind of back to that master Smith test, custom knife makers that are making knives like that wouldn't pass the test. And if they start failing that test, again, this goes back to testing your own shit. You're making really pretty knives. And then all of a sudden you start doing that test. You're going to find out in a hurry, like, Oh, what I'm making doesn't work. And that's where I think the big benefit for doing that test and forcing yourself to step outside your boundary and finish a knife and then destroy it. And honestly, that's hard for custom knife makers because let's face it, custom knife makers aren't getting rich. I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of a starving artist uh, thing. So you spent two weeks making a knife. The last thing you want to do is, is destroy it. But you kind of have to if you, if you really want to test your handle-making construction and your blade-making construction, you know. So I'm, I'm, I kind of talked about the custom thing for a minute to move on to this. And that's the question I get all the time. How much should I spend on a knife? I'm going to give you my two cents on this, and it's kind of parallels what you talked about earlier. I usually just say, hey, 180 to 300 bucks, and it's a knife you want to hand down to. It may not be a custom knife, but it's a knife you can keep for a long time, right? It's one that you'll want to, you'll cherish and you'll take care of, but also beat shit out of it. And people are like, $300 for a knife? And I'm like... And I do get a little testy on this because I'm like, you just spent 350 on boots. I guarantee they got a lifespan of a couple right. of years at best, at best. That right. knife will right. last if you don't lose the damn thing. That knife will last forever. You know, when I say forever, pretty damn close. And so you let's let's check rent. Right. So let's say you keep that right. knife for 10 years. Right. So we'll do 365 multiplied by 10 equals divided by 300. So you paid, what is that? $12 a day. Is that, that right? 
Something like that? No. It's less than that. Not for Yeah. No, maybe it's 12 cents a day. There you go. Um either way, you're paying very little every day to use that knife. And so and it lasts for, you know, forever. I think your knives around 200. Talk a little about about the price, what's acceptable. Kind of your thoughts on that a little bit more than what you've already said. Yeah, I think you got to separate the custom versus the uh, you know, the the kind of I guess factory knife per se or the mass production knife. You know, our our MKC knives, Montana Knife Company knives are more of that uh mass production standpoint, but we're doing them here in the U S fully. Um, what I'll say with a price on that is that my goal was never to race to the bottom of the price barrel and kind of, and try to compete with China. I, I want users that, that appreciate what they're buying. And quite frankly, I think they'll take a little more care to not lose it or to just throw it away. And I, I honestly think by spending a little bit more, they will be even more apt to even pass it down. Um, so I, I, I agree. I don't think you can buy an American-made knife, um, you know, for less than 150 bucks. That's any good. I mean, frankly, that's just that's just how it goes. If you're finding knives under that, um, they're they're cutting some corners somewhere. Whether it's making them overseas or not using the materials right, even the same steel, you don't like our knives. Are all not only are they all. Uh, you know, heated up to 1500 degrees and quench, but then we go into a liquid nitrogen bath of 320 degrees below zero. It gives them 10 to 15% more cutting, uh, you know, ability, more wear resistance on that blade. Like that's the step we could cut and we could save money and charge less. Um, so I, I agree with you there on your price range. Our, like our speed goats, like 225, our blackfoot's 300. Like, I think that range up to about 350 for a for a production knife is acceptable. The other things you're getting with a company like ours and some others is, you know, like we have our generations promise where not only will we do it, I actually want our customers to send our knives back to have us sharpen them if they're struggling at all. Because I would way rather after a season and you, you wear that sucker out, I'd way rather you ship it to us, let us rewrap the paracord on that speed goat, freshen up the edge, get the angle right, have that sucker sharp. And the next time, you know, for next season or a spring bear, you go out, that thing is smoking sharp. And, you know, cost the customer five bucks to pop in the mail. We pay the postage back. And I think that's stuff that, you know, Chinese, you know, companies that are making these knives in China or Vietnam aren't going to offer you that. Um, well, you're also on the custom side. You don't leave that out. So, you know, supporting someone in the hunting community is is important. Well, yeah, and frankly, our community. I mean, you know, we we as a company, we did a fundraiser last year, and we we donated eighty grand to the uh, flood victims down around Red Lodge and Yellowstone when they all flooded. I mean, stuff like that. You know, we we put on a veterans event at our shop. We flew twenty veteran veterans in to teach them how to forge. Um by having a little more margin on our knives that allows us to actually try to give back and do some of that. We're working with Rocky mountain elk right now. And, um, yeah, I just, I believe in that stuff a lot and we pay our, our employees. Well, they have 401k, they have health insurance, like the whole nine yards. Um, I believe in treating your people, right. We have amazing employees. Um, on the custom side though, uh, that's tough because it is really hard to make, 
a knife of any kind for under 400 bucks and make any money. And a lot of custom knife makers, they'll, they'll do the math and they'll be like, well, I made, I made $35 an hour making that knife, but they don't take their power bill into consideration. Uh, the maintenance to their shop, health insurance for their family. They usually don't have retirement like, and a knife maker told me years ago that was one of the best in the world. He said, I'm a professional. I've, I've been at this for 30 years. He's like, why does a lawyer make $250, $300 an hour and I'm supposed to make 30? He's like, I should make 50 to 100 bucks an hour at a minimum. You know, I'm one of the best knife makers in the world. And that, that was that guy. Um, but I definitely encourage people to not beat custom knife makers down on their prices because, man, that's a struggle. If you work on a knife, if I build a knife for you for a week, Aaron, and I screw it up, I just have to start over. And you're not paying me double. Hell, when I was a lineman for the power company, if I did something stupid at four o'clock and burned down a transformer, they were going to pay me double to work half the night to fix my own mistake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no unions in the knife world. Well, let, so. let's talk about, cause I definitely don't want people to take me out of context on the, the 180 to 300. That is like, like I say, that is more of the production type, exactly what you said. My next question would be is when someone wants to order a custom knife, the the price range on that for me is much higher, right? So when, when I say that, yeah. meaning, you know, for what I want out of it and also knowing if I actually am going to use it, I don't want to go too high, right? Because, you know, who knows what the fuck I'm going to do with that thing. So, you know, for me, and I'm doing a little bit better in life now than I, you know, was a few years ago, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, in 2016, 15, yep, probably not going to drop a grand on a custom knife, but like, you know, a grand is something that, that might be, you know, feasible 800 bucks somewhere in there to get a pretty badass custom knife, you know, from a good, yep. you know, a, a good knife maker. And you may financially still be able to say, well, I paid a grand, but I'm, I'm going to use it, you know, um, you know, paid a grand for your bow. You use that all the time, paid a grand for your pack or whatever, get the idea. Right. You know, so that's kind of what I parallel it to. And, and, uh, I, I got, you know, get your thoughts on that. And is, is a thousand too much or too little? I mean, what do you, what do you think? I think it's right in there. I, you know, if, if you say you killed an elk and you want a, a custom knife maker to, to maybe cut it up and put a, you know, uh, a handle on a knife for your grandson, for example, and, um, you want a custom elk antler handle or stag or sheep horn or something like that. Um, you know, it depends on the level of maker. Uh, I know a lot of makers that you won't even, you know, they're going to be 1500 bucks, but I would say that 800 to a thousand dollars is a real good range. You know, if it's a brand new maker and they're still learning, they're paying their dues, you know, it might be 600 bucks, you know? Uh, but again, it's kind of the more experience a maker has, uh, and it's actually kind of twofold. That maker makes a little better money because he's usually doing it faster too than a than a new maker that's sitting there struggling. But that eight hundred to a thousand dollars, and that and that's honestly another reason why I was so frustrated. You know, forever locally, I would have customers come to me or friends in in our small town and say, you know, I I, I want to have you build a hunting knife for my kid. And man, it was really a struggle because I would be like, I, I want to do it, but I know that guy doesn't want to pay 800 or a thousand dollars. And I, I would end up doing a bunch of hunting knives for three or 400 bucks and, and absolutely not make any money. Um, and it bothered me that like working class people couldn't afford what I was considering a really good hunting knife. And that's why like with our MKC knives, 
everybody has two or 300 bucks to spend if they really actually want to prioritize it. And I, I look at a knife, a good knife, like a good pack. I mean, I don't think it's any different. You're, you're putting some an investment and you're, you're putting some importance in your gear because you know, you can go to Walmart and buy a freaking pack, but it's probably going to fail you when you need it most. And I, I think a knife is, is the same way. I think you, you need something that's going to, not fail you when you need it most, you know, and it's just putting your importance on your gear. And I think the knives are the one piece of gear, uh, that have not been put enough important, you know, people haven't put enough importance on, on that piece of gear. And, and I've heard that like, well, I might lose it. And it's like, well, like you said, like those boots aren't going to last you for more than two years, you know? So if you lose it in four years, you still, I think you did fine. You know, well, spent two thousand bucks probably sucks. We deal with the same thing on the pack side of things. Um, like we have, you know, competitors that are made a hundred percent, you know, overseas or, or whatever. And then, you know, same as you, right? We we treat our employees well. We, we you know, we we have benefits and we and we and we have a lot of employees and it's all made here, American components, you know, everything, like needle thread. It is all made here. And, you know, I get it. Not everybody can afford it, but it's also like, well, man, you're, you are, you know, you're supporting, you know, hundred percent, you know, here. So I get where you're coming from because it's, it's true. You can go buy, um, well, I won't mention any names, but you know, less, less money. And it's like, we have, you know, we are taking pride in this and employing, you know, Americans here to, to do this. So I get it. And it's like somebody, um, you know, comes and wants a deal or a discount or whatever. And it's like, well, man, look, you know, I don't personally, when I go to get my tires changed, like start, like, let's make a deal, right? Like, Hey, can, can I talk you down another 90 bucks, you know, or whatever? I don't, you know, so I, I get it totally. It's funny you say that. Cause when I was at knife shows for years, custom knife shows, um, people come up and they, they want to like try to dicker you and offer you and that's exactly what we would always say. Like, do, do you go to Costco and like dicker with them when you get to the counter? Like, um, you don't dicker with Walmart and their shit's all coming from China. They, they are, they're in a position to probably dicker if you wanted to. So, uh, I, I just never did that. I'd, I'd give a good customer a discount. Um, you know, cause they're, they're helping support my family and they're buying knives over and over, you know? Um, yeah, it's, uh, and you know, honestly, we, uh, with that said, like we had no money. When I started MKC, I only started MKC. Uh, I, I quit my full-time job January 1st of 2021. Uh, we didn't have any money. I mean, Brandon and I didn't take a paycheck. My business partner, we, we went six months without a paycheck and, and the way we advertised was giving knives away, uh, and just seeding them out and with really no expectations other than just hoping people would use them and talk about them. But yeah, the discount thing, definitely, uh, the amount of Instagram messages of people wanting a discount cause they shot a deer last year and posted it is kind of crazy. Yeah. It's the world we live in. Um, <laughs> it is yeah. what it is, but yeah, I, I think that, yeah. uh, you know, with everything like we're, you know, talking about the, the big thing, like with, with, with the knife, um, that I, I want people to take away from is, you know, the, the sharpening, what you talked about 
getting the knife that you need that makes sense for what you're doing. Um, and then also supporting people who are obviously, you know, in the community, right? Supporting the people like you that are, are hunters in the outdoor community, giving back, you know, that's important. And, in, 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 you know, not sending your money overseas. Yeah. And I, I think that you can, all you have to do is go look through and read through the comment section of our Instagram uh, that's our review section. And you can see people, I think even people that are a little skeptical and they get one and, and they're commenting in there and the comments tell you like, there's definitely a different level of, of quality. And again, it's no different than a pack. Like my, my son Hank packed his bear out a couple of years ago in, in your guys's pack. And then we packed our elk this year. Um, he's, he, he's got that 44 mag and, and, uh, like there's just a difference when you strap a pack on that has structure and is made out of quality material. Um, and that was actually a hellacious kind of pack trip that we did. And, um, I I think the same with knives, like if you use them hard, you're going to notice a difference in how they feel in the hand. You know, the, the other thing that people never talk about is the sheath. Uh, you'll buy a knife at Cabela's, and you say, yeah, I want that knife. And then they hand you some piece of shit sheath that you actually can't. That's half the reason people lose so many knives is they fall out of the damn sheath where ours are custom molded. And we actually put thought into how you can carry them. You know, if you've got your Kafaru pack, you can put it on your shoulder strap or, or on a strap on the back or on your belt and actually carry them without worry about losing them, you know? Um, that's what's one part of the uh, equation that companies love to to save some margin on is put zero money into their actual sheath because nobody really looks at that in the store. Yeah, no, I, that that uh, I agree a hundred percent, and and definitely one of my biggest pet peeves is a shitty sheath. It, I hate those more than mayo. Uh, it's just irritating because it doesn't make the knife worthless. But it does make it somewhat worthless because if you can't have it outside or if it's in your pack and it falls out of the sheath and then you're cutting your pack open or, you know, it's it's irritating. And especially if you can't have it on the outside because it's going to fall out, it kind of beca- renders it whatever usability you had. Just cut 80 percent of that off if it's got to be buried in a pack and, you know, Velcroed from opening or, you know, from it coming out. So. Um, well, right, man, where, where can people, uh, find you? We're kind of, we're running over an hour. I don't take your whole morning up, but the website, where can they find purchase? When do you have knife drops? Talk about that. Kind of let everybody know where you're at. Yeah. Uh, it's been a little silly with our, our knife drops. That's the one thing people have been a little frustrated. They're like, well, we can't get one. Um, you know, we do drops usually every Thursday night. Uh, and I'll, I'll say we just never expected. I, I just, it would have been pretty arrogant for me to think that we'd have grown this fast. Um, so we, we've been caught off guard. Every time I get blades cut, I think, well, I've got enough cut here to, to last me six months and then they're, they're gone and a, a drop or two. So, you know, we, we usually, um, we, it's interesting. Like you see a lot of these brands getting bought out by big, big money and they've got big, you know, VC money behind them. And it's just my, my business partner and I, and, uh, we're bootstrapping this thing. So we, we basically cut as much as we can afford. And then we take the money from that and cut more. So, um, I definitely would like people to bear with us. That being said, I think we're, we're going to try to be in stock full time on our Blackfoot the first of March. Uh, we've been in stock on our speed goat finally, 
Uh, frankly, it'll probably be out in the next couple of days, but we've been in stock with that since December. Um, but our website, Montana knife company.com, uh, our Instagram at Montana knife company. Um, you know, we've kind of largely grown a bit as an, as an Instagram company. I, I just got back from the wild sheep foundation show. We're, we're trying to branch out more. I'm going to Western hunt expo and we're going to that show out in Portland. Um, you know, we kind of came up through the archery community, frankly, like in TAC. Uh, that's kind of where I launched the company just because, frankly, it was close and it was easy to get to with like a big sky in Park City. But, uh, no, we're growing super fast. It's it's really exciting. Um, I'll say that the industry has been incredibly supportive of us. And I, I think they can tell, a lot of people can tell that we're, we're just a couple guys that hunt and are trying to provide you know, a good product and do it the right way, you know? Yeah. Well, we appreciate it. And obviously you and I've talked back and forth. In fact, Sloan was just bugging me that I need to bug you that we need to, uh, come up with a, a, a knife together. Um, which one way or another, I got to ask you about there. There's a certain blade type that I like, but I, I don't want you to get inundated with questions about that and be like, fuck you, Aaron, you made my life miserable. So <laughs> I'll talk about that offline. I've, I've made that mistake myself about a pack and then people are overloading me with questions. I'm like, I'm going to kill that fucker for bringing that up. But, um, but yeah, no, we're, I I'm, would love to do that. I mean, you're, uh, yeah, you guys are, you guys are killing it and, well, now you're halfway closer, uh, to where we're at. So it's actually what we ought to do is just, I just run down there sometime to Riverton and see you and, um, chat about it. But Sloan's awesome. That was a, an amazing hire for us. Just, you know, his connections in the industry and he's a good dude. So yeah, he's like a, an awesome half. Yeah. He's like a chameleon. He fits in everywhere. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So for sure. Well, yeah. I was talking with, uh, Isaac Aylman this morning, he said to say hi, uh, um, probably actually probably told me to say some stuff to you. I probably shouldn't on the podcast, but I have, I have no, <laughs> no doubt. I have known that dude a long, long time. Um, yeah, he's a funny little peckerhead. You know, uh, funny story about him, uh, back when he was working at Badlands, I, uh, God, I was probably in my early twenties, maybe mid twenties at the latest. And, uh, I called in there and, um, broke ass kid with three young kids or I was broke with three young babies and I was trying to get a pack. And so I offered to trade him a knife. And so he sent me a piece of antler and I made him a custom knife like 20 years ago. And, uh, it was 20 years later, him and I ran into each other at total archery challenge and then kind of like rekindled our friendship and have been just super close since. But, uh, it's kind of wild that 20 years later, uh, him and I ended up, um, doing so much stuff together after that, but he's one of the best guys in the industry for sure. Yeah. Super good dude. He frequently reminds me that he knew me way before I was cool. And I'm like, well, I was always cool. I just only, you knew it. Yeah. So like, I don't know, Oh seven, maybe is when, <laughs> uh, you, whatever he and I met same thing through badlands or whatever. So, um, he, yeah, he's super saying good. that people, when, when, where it shows, he's always telling people, I, I knew Josh before he was cool. And I'm like, well, I don't know that I'm really cool now, but, uh, yeah, well, he's he, a good dude. He, uh, he and little Isaac and Frank were hunting in the Wasatch and somebody came up and they had Kafaru packs and they're like, do you know, Aaron Snyder? And Isaac literally straight faced, never heard of her. I, and that's Isaac, right? That's, 
Uh, yeah, and then he that's immediately true. had to call me to let me know he did that. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, well, that's funny. Right on, man. Yeah. I, I appreciate you hopping on here, truly. Um, I should have got you on a, a while ago. In fact, I had in my mind I had had you on the podcast before because I had planned on doing it like a year or two ago. And then I was like... I looked, I'm like, shit, I never did. I do so many. I, you know, I can't keep up. I can't remember what I even talk about. And I'm like, shit, I never did get him on. So I feel kind of bad. So I do really appreciate you hopping on now. Oh no, no, I, I really appreciate it. And it's, um, yeah, it's just been, it, it's weird because we've only been around for two years, but sometimes it seems like a lot longer. And, um, we're, uh, it's just been, been fast paced all the time. So I really do appreciate you having us on and, um, I'll tell people that have had a hard, that have had a hard time getting our knives. I think it's getting better, but I do appreciate the, uh, we have a lot of, I mean, Brandon actually has posted on our Instagram, like what's your favorite pack company, or he'll ask what your favorite podcast is. And it's, it's amazing, both the podcast and the pack. And I'm not just trying to blow smoke up your ass. I mean, you guys is, uh, stuff is, is huge with our customers. So it's been, it's been really cool watching you guys grow and, um, we're just trying to trying to catch some of these bigger uh, bigger companies in the industry and be like you guys. So <laughs> that's funny. I appreciate it. We're well, it. as far as like the waiting on the knives, I'm gonna since we were talking about Isaac, I'm gonna use a quote for that that I got from him, and he said, "Son, if you want to bang a ten, you're gonna have to put some time and effort into it unless you get her drunk." So if you want to really get a knife, <laughs> you're gonna have to get Josh drunk or Give just me- wait. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'll be at I'll be at Western Hunt, so I'd be happy to let somebody buy me a drink and try. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, all right, cool. Right on, man. I'll see you down at the the Western Hunt Expo then. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for hopping on. Thanks for the great knives. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. I appreciate it. Yep. Take it easy. Yep. You too.